Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is the COO of Home2Go, Valentin Gruber. Home2Go is a marketplace with the world's largest selection of holiday rentals, listing millions of offers across thousands of trusted partners. Valentin spent two years as CRO, refining the customer support program by fueling it with Salesforce to create a new B2B2C CRM tool across the company. Prior to joining Home2Go, Valentin spent seven years with the Adabin building up the company subsidiaries. This involved time spent internationally in the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the USA, and building and scaling both the B2B and B2C sales teams. He then moved to the German headquarters as country head. Valentin studied management and finance at the University of Kentucky for a year before attending WHU Otto Buschheim School of Management in Germany. So Valentin, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. Very glad to be here. I may have stumbled a tiny bit over some of the German pronunciation on names, but I'm sure the audience will forgive me. Um, interesting that you went to school in Kentucky. What the heck were you thinking going from the from Germany to Kentucky? I was actually part of the undergrad program that I attended at WHU. So part of that three years bachelor degree there was to spend a semester abroad. And as I've been to the West Coast before, as I've been to the East Coast before and mm -hmm. knew what both oceans looked like, I thought, <laughs> well, for getting the real American experience, you need to go somewhere in the middle. And I thought Kentucky is quite famous. I, uh, I assumed Kentucky would be about three things. And uh, I got confirmed with that experience. Uh, Kentucky horse racing, Kentucky bourbon and Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> had plenty of all of it and was a really amazing time there. <laughs> That's amazing. I would have guessed the the, uh, the bourbon. I forgot about the horse racing naturally. And then the Kentucky fried chicken is hilarious. That's great. All right. So you did some time over there. You've done some time internationally. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the brand, a little bit about, um, you know, what, what it is that home to go sets up and, and how it differentiates from some of the other brands that we know that are, are in and around your space. Sure, absolutely. So uh, we started the company um, with the original idea of actually booking a vacation home being quite difficult because there were so many local platforms and local heroes that always had the best vacation homes in a particular destination, but it was extremely difficult to find those and to have a safe kind of trustful uh, booking experience when being on these websites, but it was always a hassle. And the idea was, well, if I want to go to a new travel destination um, and I don't know who the local hero platform is, let's bring them all together on one big platform. And this is how the entire idea of Home2Go started and the idea of bringing all these travel platforms from around the globe together on one big platform and there was providing the biggest, most comprehensive selection of vacation homes mm -hmm. around the globe on a single platform with the additional advantage of it being a trusted booking environment where customers, yeah, enjoy the both of best, best worlds, trusted booking experience and the whole selection that is out there. And is it, is it different from Airbnb? Like how different is it from, from the Airbnb platform that we know or that, that at least we know in North America? 
I think the, the key differentiation is, uh, and you see it when you look back into the history of Airbnb, how it started. Um, Airbnb started as a couch surfing platform. So I live in a big city like New York and I have an extra couch or even a guest room available at some point, even an entire apartment maybe. So I rent it out. Um, so Airbnb came rather from the point of co-living in urban spaces. Mm. Whereas we focus on traditionally already strong developed vacation destinations where I would say Airbnb is still nowadays not the most represented one, um, but that has always been our focus different than two Airbnbs. It's very true, actually. When I think about it, Airbnb strength really is the, the more um, the big cities and the smaller spaces. They don't really have the vacation homes as strong. Now, if you look in the, into the most popular travel destinations, vacation destinations uh, in Europe, Airbnb's model is attracting hosts that directly go to this platform because they have this one vacancy right. that they would like to see somewhere. Um, whereas the most of the inventory in this well, popular travel destinations, they use agencies, very large agencies. Mm. And these agencies have been there for years and they are living off customers that go there again and again and occasionally also some new customers. And they have had local platforms that probably don't cost them as much as, uh, as as an Airbnb. And then, yeah, there was never the need for, for such a thing. So do you just scrape the internet and pull all these listings onto your site? Or do you partner with all of these other um, sites and platforms? How does the model work? We love our partners and we do direct partner, partner relationships. So we have contracts with all of our partners that you would find on our platform. We, we don't do scraping. We see this really just as a support to get them the attention that they should have. Wow. So there's a lot of customer service and a lot of the business development side then to get all these partners on board and to build those relationships with them. Indeed. And in various different ways, like, I mean, like we have large partners as an Expedia or as a booking.com. We also have very small partners that maybe have five homes that they would like to see on our platform. So obviously that way also our teams are structured and work in very different ways because we need to cater to all of these different types of, in this case, inventory suppliers uh, at the same time towards the consumer. Um, while we do have suppliers in the back, the consumer still perceives us many times as their primary point of contact. And so also towards consumers, we do have a big service team uh, making sure that they are happy with what they are finding on our platform. And where, where is the company based out of? Are you European-based? We're European-based. We founded and are still headquartered in Berlin, Germany, um, but also have multiple offices. And now with the remote trend, even more people around the world. Mm-hmm. Where, where are your main offices right now? Our main offices are certainly Berlin, um, and then we do also have our uh, development offices in Lithuania um, and have two main offices there. And how are you funded? Um, we were originally funded by, by Venture Capital, uh, originally Business Angels, then Venture Capital, um, and yeah, are currently uh, in discussions, as everyone can read in the public news, uh, with the Lakestar spec on making this a combined entity. And, and how was it going through the VC funding phases? Were you there when, when you were bringing on money into the organization or was that prior to you coming in? It was unfortunately prior to me coming in. I think I still was part of like some money flows. So I saw them, maybe not everything as a round, but rather as convertible loans that you also occasionally do in, in the development of a company. Um, 
but yeah, I think the major stuff is, has been now happening over the last couple of weeks and months. And this where I was part of previously, and, not too much. And does it change the organization? Has it changed the leadership team or the way that you've treated the business or thought about the business? You constantly adapt to having more resources available and thinking bigger. And I think it also changes in some ways the way you are working. While when you're in a small team, and I guess you know that yourself, if you have a family project, you work very task-based. So, hey, we got to get this thing on that thing. And that's a task. Um, while the bigger a company gets, um, the more you go away from just working on a task base, more into tactics, more into goals, more into strategy and more into vision. And so this is what I observed throughout the development of the company is simply that your way of working needs to change, needs to adapt to it. It is a required change for you um, as you cannot be a good lead in this. Um, but this is, I guess, my, my major observation with more money because at the same time, you still need to stay entrepreneurial. You don't want to change to someone who says, well, now I have a full bank account. So now let's try to find ways to blow it out. So still everything is a very conscious decision and uh, being entrepreneurial still means like treat the money as it, it would be your own. And this is, I think, something we're still doing today. How many, how many people in the company? How many employees approximately? About approximately 350 employees. 350. So it's a real company, um, real moving parts. <laughs> Has it, and I didn't mean like that. to call it a real company. Yes. No, I, and I, I joke about that because there's, you know, people like I run a company, I've only got nine employees, but you know, that's a real company. But when you get to the stage of like, you know, 100, 300, that's a real business where politics is starting to creep in. You've got all of the strategy layers. You have a real professional leadership team, I would imagine. How many employees were in the company when you joined? Um, when I joined, I guess we were about 200. Okay, so you're almost we double. Have, yes, we had some ups and downs. Um, I think also with affiliate companies, uh, we had uh, some more. However, they were later closer to us. But then, I mean, uh, COVID, I don't have to tell you, uh, obviously left, uh, had an impact uh, also on us temporarily at least. Um, so you have some ups and downs throughout, uh, throughout the way you had developed as a company. But no, we do have ambitious growth plans. And uh, yeah human capital is the biggest resource that we have. Yeah. So talk, talk to me about the, the, what it's like running a company when you go from the 200 to 350 employees, what, how did, how did the company change? Were you bringing in a lot of extra senior teams? Was it, um, did it get more complicated? Did politics start to creep in? What were some of the challenges of that growth? I guess, Part of the growth was coming through new companies and new acquisitions. So that is just a matter of aligning cultures and bringing people together. Um, but by that, I really mean bringing people together is the key uh, in terms of let them have a beer together at night or water. Um, but this is usually settling the point and then you quickly align. And I think culture part is a, is a very big one for us. Else, the key areas that you grow in on the one hand, is all the teams that automatically scale with a scaling business. So obviously, customer customer success operations, um, they need to go. If you have twice as many customers, you will have likely twice as many customers having questions about a vacation home. Um, the other key, key growth areas were, like you suggested already, indeed, professionals. So once the more your business model is defined and the clearer of an idea you have, what direction you want to go, 
the more sense it makes to bring in people that know exactly how this is done or have at least a very, very clear picture on how this is done. So we brought in people who are very hungry to exactly fulfill this mission where if you're in a more undefined station where you refer to before as maybe not a real company, you need flexible profiles because it might be that they're doing something different tomorrow than they were doing today. Mm -hmm. um, with us, we now hire a lot more people that have a very, very clear idea of what they are doing and that professionalizes you uh, as a company overall. And just because you mentioned it twice now, so politics, I think this is what we want to be away from dramatically. So politics is nothing that has a place here in our company. Whenever we see politics, we directly call it out and kill it. Yeah, it, it just doesn't belong here. Uh, we do live in a very, very open feedback culture and are very cautious that uh, something like this does not happen within home to go um, and therefore I was extremely happy with with yeah how everything is going and with how teams are collaborating now in in North America there's been a huge trend in the last 20 years around building really strong company cultures you know building the the fun entrepreneurial tech culture and trying to become a magnet for talent and core values based etc cetera, etc cetera. And I, I've coached a number of companies that are based in, in Germany. I've coached some in Austria. I've coached a couple in Switzerland. Um, I've coached a couple out of Berlin. The, the, the CEOs as a group tend to say, oh, that's different in Germany. And I disagree with them at times. Like, I, I don't understand how it can be so different. Do you find that culture, you know, in the tech sector is different in Germany from what you may read in the press or what you observed when you were in the U.S.? Or is it largely the same? No, I don't think that is that different. Of course, there are some cultural differences. And if you read the culture map, then you will also quickly figure out what it is, whether it's natural. But building a company culture and then the result of that is not that different. I've done that in the US for three years between 2015 and 18. Uh, I founded and started like Audi Bene subsidiary here.com. Um, because Audi Bene, I know, is quite tough to pronounce being married, so we so branded it there, called it here.com. But of course, one of the key challenges was, okay, so now we are in the US, but we are a German company. So what will a company culture look like? And if you look into the, like, watch a traditional movie on, on US company culture, uh, then you might get a little bit scared of, are you able to replicate the culture? And of course, we were not able to replicate the culture, but at least on the core values, 80, 90% were similar to, to what we had in Germany. So I would disagree. Uh, you can build up similar company cultures also in Germany. And I think, as you point out, like it, it, culture really is largely based around the core values. It's not based around the free massages and the free lunch and the, the foosball table. It's based around obsession with core values, isn't it? Absolutely. It's purely core values. Um, I think that everything else is a nice perk but you can offer the nicest drinks and selection of foods in an office. This is not what will make people stay or will make people strive. It's purely the culture. Uh, and this is all about the human aspect. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I think about families that when you're raising children, if you just give them all the toys and you give them a beautiful home, you might have a couple spoiled brats living with you. But if you really ground them in core values, then you can give them some of the perks of it. It's more appreciated. Right. So that's, that's how I see it almost working. Um, Absolutely. And I guess, I mean, uh, like you experienced it yourself um, in an interview, if a person asks too much about the things and what the office provides as perks and doesn't ask any question about the culture, or doesn't reflect on it, then this has also been quite a short interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
yeah, it, it really cuts it off, cuts it quickly. You mentioned how to stay entrepreneurial and that that that's one of your focuses as the company's scale to the 350 employees. How where have you found that being entrepreneurial is getting stretched? I think the more dependencies you automatically uh, have in a growing company, um, the more it becomes a stretch to be entrepreneurial because one of the key characteristics of an entrepreneur is just, I do it. However, when, as soon as you have more professionals, uh, more people that really know their stuff, more of yourself not knowing all the details on it, it becomes a stretch because people have to have the patience of not doing it yourself, but still behaving like, yes, it is your responsibility of getting it done. And being entrepreneurial compared to, in my sorry for, but not being corporate, for me, very big and important statement. This is like, forget about the, this is not my responsibility kind of mindset. Yeah, that was one that I never had that problem with the, this isn't my responsibility. The one I struggled with was I was too entrepreneurial as our company got very big. Um, when we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we had 250 at the head office, 3,000 people system-wide. And I couldn't slow down enough to consider the impact of the other business areas and the other people and the other leaders and strategy. It was just, I was like a bull in a China shop. And I think I needed to learn to slow down. I wasn't that good at that. Where have you struggled as the COO when you've gone from the CRO role into the COO role? Have you, I mean, I'm sure it hasn't been easy the entire path. Has, have there been a couple of struggles that you've worked through? Uh, so I wouldn't say that changing from CO to CO really changed that much. Okay. Um, yeah, it's more or less the same responsibilities as before. Maybe a few additional ones uh, came up, um, but I think overall the the struggle it's more learning that you have over time. Um, is that decisions don't tend to be right or wrong anymore. Um, they just need to be made. And I think this is one of the, the key learnings over the last couple of months or even years. And it's like so many times you are holding up, making a decision, just trying to get to a 100% correct answer and having discussions about what is right or what is wrong, where in most of the times, right or wrong doesn't exist. It's just mm -hmm. speed that matters. Speed I just want to make many decisions and it doesn't matter if a few of them are wrong because wrong doesn't exist. It's just good and better decisions. I feel like. Yeah, I agree with that, that I've, I've always said that momentum creates momentum, right? That the, the faster you can make the decisions, the faster you can make more decisions. And then I heard years ago, that concept of the minimum viable product where you just launch and you get it out the door. So I've been talking about minimum viable everything like product, decision, marketing piece, whatever. It's just like, get it done, get it out the door and then iterate as fast as possible. Do you struggle with that in your growth when, when you are that kind of entrepreneurial, just get it done and get it, make a decision quickly. Does that come back to bite you in the ass at all? No, no. I think we do have really good teams that have strong minds that have a strong ambition on execution. Um, so they really get stuff done quickly. And so the, MVP kind of style is is absolutely working. Um, I guess then bringing it into the org in a very efficient way because in an MVP, MVP, well, they're, you're a little bit more pragmatic on the one or other corner and maybe not everything is perfectly set up in every system. So it's rather than, okay, making the MVP the real product, mm. that is what takes 
a lot of time, a lot of coordination work. And this is not as much fun, you would say, as an entrepreneur. And yeah. therewith, ah, people are struggling rather with that part, not with new ideas and getting them on the road quickly. Yeah, that's where I see the real strength of the team come into when they can actually take the MVP and turn it into the real product, right? Where they can take the minimum viable everything and then they know it's working. Now they can really make it, polish it. That's that's where I think the hard work comes in. What are your company's core values? Our company's core values, we go all about uh, our key leadership principles. Um, we want everyone to be a leader. You don't have to be a leader of people. You can also be a, a thought leader. You can be a customer leader. Um but we work around seven core principles and they go from full focus on customers, like being entrepreneurial, um, high-end develop the best. Um, we, yeah, we, we live those very strong from the first recruiting moment um, throughout their entire development journey where we rate people um, on, on, these, on these points. And, and is it something that's reinforced in the day-to-day? -day? And how do you reinforce the core values day-to-day? -day? How does the leadership team reinforce them? I think they became very much part of our communication and mm. context of decisions that are made. So I think in a growing or larger organization, you always need to provide context to the decisions. You cannot just say it's A or B. You need to say why. And in many times, not to go too deep into some data detail, uh, it also has to be about the principles by that, by which you make decisions. Um, like Ray Dalio with his book Principles, and I'm sure you read it. Mm -hmm. um, also, decisions are more or less just a machine if you could do it uh, in, in a management position. And so for us, they are part of daily communication. They are part of decision-making and a strong argument anytime because these principles are set in stone. You don't move around with those. They are set. How do you, um, what do you focus on day to day and how do you prevent yourself from getting sucked into the minutiae, into the small details? You know, again, 350 employees, there's a million meetings you could be involved in. There's a million emails you could have to read. How do you keep yourself focused on the core areas and what are those that you focus on? Sure. Um, I think it has something to do with how you understand yourself because, I mean, unfortunately, you get at some point to the point where you realize, okay, there's hardly anything that I can do with my bare hands anymore. <laughs> For everything, I need people. If I want to know some certain data, uh, if I need a really good presentation, um, and if I need to coordinate uh, some new product integration, I also will need really good people that know the details. So I see myself mostly as a people enabler, and this is also where I focus the vast part of my time on, is the people that I work with in enabling them, in connecting them, in providing them sometimes with the strategy they are missing, sometimes with the vision that they are missing for their strategy. So it really depends. You work with people on different levels. Um, this is, I would say, where half the time is going, the other half the time, um, you still need to provide a lot of the vision and strategy yourself, at least uh, in our stage. That means focusing on our biggest bets. So what is it that, where, where do we want to go to and what are the key beliefs that we have behind that and what are the key initiatives that we there with need to drive through the company that are not there today and how do we make those become reality and thinking and working around these key bets is i would say where the other half of the time needs to go into so working on the right projects together with the teams interesting all right so you guys were in a sector that got hit really hard with covid i mean the travel sector the vacation sector just people 
stopped traveling and had to stop traveling. Um, How did you manage through that uncertainty? My sister was laughing about it the other day, partially crying, partially laughing, I think. And she said, you know, I had all these great plans for my company, but God had other plans for me. Um, How did you manage the business through this massive uncertainty when your whole business is predicated on travel? Indeed. Um, I think when when COVID first hit, we were all pretty unsecure of what would happen uh, next, how long would it be there? Um, And for us, it was quickly after the first booking season, it's usually around January, February of the year. And so in March, I think it hit pretty bad. And so we were very curious whether a summer season would happen or would not. And so for like a couple of weeks, um, yeah, it was quite uh, quite tough because you had on the one hand side, no one booking new vacations. And then on the other side, you had people canceling their already booked vacations. Um, however, unfortunately, this only held on for like a couple of weeks. And then as people saw the first releases of, uh, of the restrictions, people started to book again. And this was funny because now the booking trend changed because what they saw and obviously what was obvious is that hotels, I mean, you have two types of accommodation. You have vacation rentals or you have hotels. This is where you go on your vacation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And of course, hotels, when people thought about it, very quickly, you think about the big masses at breakfast buffet. Uh, You think about your very small room. You think about a spa that is closed because (laughs) too many people on one place. Yeah, yeah. So... This was all gone. And so the only other option was we need vacation homes because there you are safe. There you can also create your vacation the way you want it. Don't make any compromises. You can move freely. And therewith, we had a tremendous boom right after the really big shutdown. And we recovered extremely quickly from that. And I think also got provided with the chance for causing a longer term change in travel behavior because some people traveled to a vacation home for the very first time and now they got to feel all the differences but also all the benefits of a vacation home of being independent of not making compromises at uh, at the breakfast buffet but just getting what you like best and yeah in in enjoying all the individualism that you have that makes yeah it makes so much sense i i I knew a lot of people who um, and me included that decided to do kind of working vacations where you just pick a place and off you go. And and so you are booking those places. I don't want to go and live in a hotel for three weeks, but I would happily rent a, rent a vacation home for three weeks and go and live and work. And you are already referring to a new type of traveler there. Mm-hmm. So the one thing is your summer vacation, your one or two weeks that you spent together with your family, that you were maybe spending in a hotel that you are likely now spending in a vacation home. However, there's also an entirely new type of traveler um, developing. So the kind of vacation travelers. Uh, I mean, before June, I only spent six weeks in Germany uh, this year because it was certainly not the nicest place. And there are other amazing places that you can work from. Uh, but I don't want to work from a hotel because then right. I keep in the same room that I work in. But getting a vacation home somewhere or also thinking it in a, in a family sense. So if over summer you have six, eight, 10 weeks where your children are out of school. Uh, in the past, you only spent one or two weeks on vacation. Now you can spend 10 weeks on vacation and just that the person that works is two weeks off and the other eight weeks, they work remotely from a small office that they have in their vacation home. 
and still the rest of the family enjoys probably the most incredible vacation that they ever had. Yeah, you've got all these digital nomads now that are traveling and, and have no intention. Like I'm, I'm going to be one of them where I don't really want to be in the one city anymore. It's, it's going to be a combination of, um, oh, interesting. I'm going to be all over your platform shortly. <clears throat> so, I appreciate that. <laughs> How do you how do you build trust with the remote teams? You said that you got and with remote sea leaders. Were you guys when COVID hit? Did you have to disperse and and work from home, all of you? Yes. And how how did you how did you continue to build trust and communication while you were all remote? I think something that we realized very quickly is that when everything is just happening via video, that a lot of the intrapersonal conversations are cut off. So the chat that people have at the coffee machine that they have when walking out of the office together or when just passing by someone's desk, they were all gone suddenly. So we had to create new environments where people met and people felt comfortable in chatting over over video. And so we just created a lot of new occasions like daily coffee chats where everyone can drop in, drop out, where we have breakout groups for certain topics that people want to discuss, but not work related, but rather vacation or cooking or, I don't know, organizing some digital sport events. So we had to create an environment where people didn't just spend the additional time that they saved from not having to travel to work. Um, in still establishing the personal connections with each other. And so there was a lot more focus on this in, in everything we, we did. Did the, did the introverts become more introverted? You know, were they showing up for those events, those casual coffee shots, the digital sports, or did they just pull further back into themselves and work from home on their own? I think we were very straight with all the leads that they need to include and make sure that all of their uh, people are heard and are provided with the platform where they still feel comfortable in connecting with other people. And so the solutions were a little bit individual based on team and based on also some people's needs. Um, and it worked quite well. I wouldn't say that we now have lost the faith or a human touch to uh, some of the more introvert people. Wouldn't okay. say so. I'm curious if you're seeing any of the impact that we're seeing in North America right now with uh, compensation and salaries. It feels like, um, and, and I don't have any data points other than all the CEOs I keep talking to, it feels like employees are starting to get paid a lot more than they used to get paid. Are you seeing that over there at all? You are. A yes. <laughs> yes, I think um, right after COVID, we have a post-COVID boom on the employee market. Um uh, we see it with already recruiters, I think, currently being the most looked after profile on entire LinkedIn. And it's extremely difficult to get people that are getting you people. Um, and also with, with the people, I think, around COVID, the needs of employees changed a little bit. And uh, they are now looking for even more purpose on the one hand. Mm -hmm. um, but also, of course, for all the perks of working remote and working while traveling and things and how you equip the home office. So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, while many went into themselves and thought about the purpose of life and uh, the purpose of their work, 
that you have to now put even more focus on. And this is where I would say American companies are way better than, than German companies in. Um, the second part is, of course, that you have to quickly adapt to a remote lifestyle. You cannot force a five-day in-the-office policy anymore. That doesn't right. work. Yeah, that's gone for sure. You know, one thing that I also noticed was um, the employees, they they weren't they weren't necessarily even looking for one company to work for anymore. They were just looking to do the stuff they like to do. And they were, we were seeing the freelancer economy heat up, you know, the gig economy where they would, let's say that they worked in recruiting for one company before. Now they would do a recruiting role for three companies. You know, there was a lot more of that happening. Did you notice that over there? To be honest, no, no. Okay. I have not seen that yet. I think there are some particular roles where people just like to work as freelancers, but in my eyes, they also did before. Um, we don't see in particular that people now like to work for two or three companies, Good. but maybe also these kind of profiles don't even get through to me anymore. Yeah, who knows, right? Can you talk about, about um, what the hiring landscape is like over there right now? Is it harder to find people than it was pre-COVID? And are you finding that more people are job searching? Like, are, did you have much turnover? No. Employee yeah, turnover? No. I think people really enjoyed we got later a lot of positive feedback, particularly on how we handled the COVID situation on the one hand on the communication side, but also on the performance side, because I think among all the travel companies, we were among the by far strongest to very quickly recover. Um, and throughout the situation in itself, we all the time communicated extremely authentic. So there was no message that we were hiding. We were telling it exactly how it was. And when we were uncertain on how a situation would develop, we would say that we are uncertain on how a situation developed. And so I think we just increased our level of transparency a lot and it increased the level of trust of the team in such a tough situation a lot. And so I would say that we have even more buy-in from the team than, than ever before. Interesting. Now you've got, I think you've got your master's, do you have your MBA or just your undergrad? Just my undergrad. And then I decided my learning curve would be way steeper working in a super high growth company than doing any other further theoretic work. <laughs> I, I agree, by the way, I've got a huge bias against MBAs, sadly, but um, mine is more that I think too much theory actually hurts the productivity where, you know, I think the entrepreneurship that you carry with some, some theory is more beneficial. Do you guys have any bias against MBAs at all in your company or do you like, do you look for people that are out there and, and have worked and apprenticed and worked for companies? Do you have any strong bias towards that? No. So it's not a it's not a criteria in the very first place on whether someone has an MBA or not. Uh, I think what you're rather looking for in it's the same for everyone is the ambition, the true ambition. Can you see the drive out of the profile? Can you read it? Can you see it uh, by the decisions that they took uh, in their career? Or in how far are they just still on the search for what they want to do in life? And I think at least when I refer back to many MBA profiles that I see, um, I feel that it has been people that were not so secure yet to hit the work market or not so secure yet in terms of what they want to do just at all and try to build up a stronger signaling. Um, but I have not felt that the quality of someone who's done an MBA, at least in Europe, 
uh, is that significantly different than someone who just has a master's degree or so. How about we talk about the open feedback culture? You said the open feedback culture at home to go is important. How do you foster that open feedback culture and how do you, um, you know, encourage it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I must admit uh, we were kind of stealing a little bit um, because I believe that not everyone has to reinvent the wheel. So we are basically just buying 50 copies of Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer's No Rules Rules and said, everyone, okay, please read it over the next month. We'll afterwards have a book discussion. Um, And this was the easy and quick approach not to have to develop it all yourself because someone already has put a lot of thoughts into and it's explaining it in quite a good way in that book. Um, and so what we did is we distributed that book. Um, we discussed for us still what would mean a good feedback culture for us and where do we see the traits of it and what parts do we want to take over and what not. And then we had, so to say, with a 90%, we take it as it is, 20% adaption approach, um, exactly the feedback culture that uh, we feel is, is positive for us. And now it's something that we encourage everyone to. So uh, in one-on-ones, I just had one before I joined this call, the last 10 minutes are always reserved for open feedback. And we talk about it. And I must admit this time, because we joined the call way too late and I had to jump a little early, uh, we had to cut it, but we already discussed, okay, we got to prolong this time for next week. Well, when I'm back from vacation, Wednesday, and we're going to do 30-minute feedback. And I'll already center the points up front in a written way because I already took the notes previous to our conversation today so that we don't lose any time. Um, But this open way of feedback, in the beginning, it feels a little bit odd um, (laughs) because in every direction, getting and providing feedback, um, you on the one hand have to reflect every situation that you are in with colleagues much more. And Mm. at the same time, yourself, if you're sometimes in a stress situation and not every colleague has yet developed the perfect feeling for when is it right to provide feeling uh, feedback, then you have to, of course, take yourself a little bit back, still appreciate it, um, even though in that situation, this might not be the best and your brain cannot handle it right now, take it and digest it at a later point. So I think these are the things we, we are now working on. That's a, By the way, that's an amazingly strong company culture that is so un-German. Indeed, um, like, like that, that, that is more like California or, you know, Seattle. That's like so hippie. That's so uh, it's amazing. I, I think it's fantastic that you're doing that. And, and even with a, an organization that's that large, I also like when you said, you know, you don't really have to have the ideas on your own. You can kind of borrow or take the ideas from others. I've, I've always said that R and D stands for rip off and duplicate that there's already some good systems out there and you should run with them. Um, and lastly, just before I, I wrap with my final question for you, when when you mentioned, you know, going from the one meeting to the other, you were exactly on time for this meeting. In in one of my books, Meetings Suck, I wrote a book called Meetings Suck, and it's for every employee to learn how to run proper meetings and how to attend them. But one of the things I say is that you finish every meeting five minutes early. And that way you have time to walk down the hall, go to the bathroom, talk to your assistant, get a cup of coffee and start the meeting or start the phone call on time. And so... I think it's just an, it's a, such an easy system to put in place. If you have a meeting set from nine o'clock till 10, stop at nine 55, just enough, right? I, just, I couldn't agree more. And, and fortunately Google is even providing you with the nice option. I mean, we work out of the G suite um, to auto opt in for speedy meetings. So every meeting that is set for 30 minutes ends after 25 and every meeting that is set for one hour ends after 50 minutes. Yep. And that works perfectly. And 
uh, indeed, because that has previously always been a problem because no meeting would start on time because people first had to walk from one or the other meeting room. Yeah, um, it, it exactly. if you if you end you. if you end the minute, you can't be at the next place. It's you know, it's not like a train that's leaving the same track. Like the train can can show up and leave, but it doesn't have to go to the other track, right? Anyway, I think it got a little bit easier with with video now because it's much easier to leave one call and join the next call. Yes, it's different than walking from meeting room to meeting room. However, it was healthy to walk from meeting room to meeting room, um, do a bit quick bio break, get an apple. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. just that your brain can quickly like save the file and open up the next file um, to mentally prepare for the next session. And I think, yeah, just like you said, big fan of it. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to check out the the Google setting on the speedy meetings and see if I can get them to um, to to take a look at my book meeting suck as well. So wrap up question, final question. If you were to go back to the 22 year old Valentin and you were going to give yourself some advice, advice that you know to be true now, but you wish you'd known when you were 22, what would it be? It would be two things that I guess we learned by heart, however, not just at home to go, but over the last uh, nine years. Um, first, culture eats strategy for lunch. That is a very important one. You cannot build a performing company without the recording culture for it. Second is there is no right or wrong decision. There is just no decision that's the worst decision you can make. Decisions are usually best and better. And so just take a decision and keep the momentum, stay, stay speedy. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that whole just make a decision and get going. All right, Valentin Gruber, the COO from Home to Go. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Thank you very much, Cameron. Thanks, Re- everyone. Really appreciate the time today. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.